The podcast you're about to listen to is a combination of the show broadcast on Sunday the 28th of March and on Tuesday the 30th of March. Unfortunately, technical issues prevented us from sharing with our audience the interviews from Councillor Gerald Vernon-Jackson and Councillor Terry Norton in our show on Sunday the 28th to those. So I hope that doesn't spoil your enjoyment of the show. Thank you for listening. The time is 6.27pm. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. <laughs> Aside from the connection problems that you had that struggled to get you in, are you all right, mate? Yes, I am poised and ready for a, another Sunday evening of fun and or frolics. So, uh, yeah, just coming off the back of two weeks holiday. So ready to get back into the fray tomorrow. We've been decluttering. So uh, all good. We are poised and ready to leap in yourself. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Um, aside from some hurried editing um, this afternoon. So um, but thank you very much to our contributors that have um, even though they Sadly, they couldn't um, give us time to be with us live today. Um, we've got a couple of um, we've got a couple of uh, recorded um, comments um, that we can we can share, um, which is really great. So thank you very much to uh, Gerald, Councillor Gerald Bernard Jackson and Councillor Terry Norton uh, for giving us those. Um, and we do have Kimberly Barrett joining us live. I noticed weirdly from the live stream, by the way, that. Mm. Um, and I never knew this was happening before, but our words are being transcribed live. Yeah, that is a new thing. So uh, yeah, we appear in subtitles. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a clever old thing. Well, um, well, there we go. Who knew the internet? This thing will never catch on. Um, so oh, yeah, marvelous. Yes, ab- absolutely fantastic. So, uh, sorry, Lynn, that was my fault with the music um, not being um, audible. That's because I had it too low on the mixer desk um, with me pressing buttons madly. So, yeah, usually, Lynn, we, we go through a comprehensive series of sound checks and <laughs> and uh, thoroughly prepare for this. Uh, when the uh, co-host crashes through the door 27 seconds before we go live, um, unfortunately... We had to forgo that thoroughness. So apart from technical-based disasters, Simon, what happened on this day? So on this day, in 1866, the first ambulance goes into service. And hopefully they're not still waiting for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, In 1979, a partial meltdown at Three Mile Island nuclear plant in the US. Um, So there was a release of radioactive gas and iodine into the atmosphere, but no deaths, thank you very much, no fatalities. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good thing because that could have gone horribly wrong. I mean, it wasn't pretty, but but um, by comparison, yes. Um, indeed, yes. So um, could have been worse, but horrible thing. Um, 1979, the British government of Jim Callaghan falls. Ah, oh, Jim Callaghan. Falling government. I vaguely, oh, I would have been ten at the time. I sort of vaguely remember him. Um, much lampooned, if I remember right. A, a man with a pipe. Wouldn't see a politician with a pipe these days, would you? As in a smoking pipe. It didn't, it didn't just carry around like a. I was going to say, I don't think of I'm, tubing. Oh, or um, yes, um, or whatever that might be a euphemism for. So, nonetheless, uh, yes, great. Um, and the last thing, two thousand and six, at least one million union members, students, and unemployed take to the streets in France in protest at the government's proposed. First Employment Contracts Law, which brought into place uh, legislation that allowed um, employers to more easily dismiss uh, people who were being employed for their first job. Uh, they love a bit of a protest in France, don't they? Mad keen on it. So, uh, yeah, but perhaps we'll save that for another day. So, packed show this week. Three topics to cover. Um, yes. So, um, so yeah. So the th- so the three things. So do you want to lead off with the what the where we were explain or put our teeth in and explain what they are. So what we what yeah, we so we go for it. Yeah. Oh, this is this is so slick to this week, aren't we? So yes, uh, the first is about uh, after May the sixth and some of the changing of the easing of the lockdown laws. Part of that bill that went through said councils enough of your home streaming. 
time to to get you back into the council chamber um which a little bit head scratchy but we'll get some views on that um the st james's development the um developer has stepped forward this week to say that um unfortunately um if they were to put any affordable housing on there that they would not be able to afford to feed their children so they've uh They've um they've said can we build it without any affordable housing, and the final is the great uh, we we you know we were not going to go into the flags but um we've got the EU and the UK vaccines should we call it a squabble at the moment I don't think we use the word squabble often enough and I'm interested to know whether the transcription is getting that one right. It would be interesting to see whether whether it gets that one right. Um, I guess you could say we'll take a jab at the international Whoa. vaccine spat. How was that? A boom, like that, like that. And and I've um I playfully put um had my EU flag up in the corner. Um, but I've I've kind of removed that now because I was just being um it's just having a bit of fun. So um yes, yeah, so um although we've announced them in that order, that's not the order we're going to do them in because we're no. not like that. So the um, the first one that we're going to look at is we're going to look at St James's. Is that we are we are, um, so we've got our our live guest uh, poised like a coiled zebra is Kimberly Barrett, who's going to come on, who um, who has who's been on before, obviously talked to us, a very um, passionate campaigner in Milton. So let's welcome Kimberly Barrett on to the show. He clicks the button and hopes. Yay! There is the ding dong. The the sound oh, is good it's evening, not, Kimberly. It's not Avon. Hiya. Hi Kimberly. Uh, thank, Hiya. thank you for giving up part of your Sunday to come join us. Any time. <laughs> um well you might live to regret that. Um so um yeah. so St James's. So apparently the developer can't afford affordable housing. What's going on? What a shock, eh? <laughs> what a shock. Um it's something that comes up quite frequently. I think we've seen it over the city over many years, but it's it's a real shame. Um, just a little bit of background. St. James Hospital at the moment is split almost into what we class as phase one, which is the east side of the hospital grounds. And then you've got the west side, which is the main hospital ground, uh, main hospital building and the grounds around it. Um, currently, potentially owned anyway by two different developers phase one is homes england um yep. they want to build 107 homes there but they will provide affordable housing and the correct amount of affordable housing uh, if planning goes through phase two we were promised several times in public meetings and emails and all sorts um they're looking to build um 151 flats and houses there um and now no affordable homes at all um so it's a real disappointment if these do go through that once again it's local people who will end up suffering because we have the lack of affordable homes yeah and it's an interesting one kimberly isn't it because I, I had a bit of a read around the subject and and evidently from what i could work out the developer says that with the you know basically i sort of said it was your fault really the, the local residents of milton because originally they had wanted to put 84 new builds as well as the redevelopment of the 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 existing building and you feisty green types cut that down to 58 which has left them now meaning that they're not going to meet their 20 percent profit threshold so they're only going to make um, a 18.4 million pounds profit and that's why they can't afford any affordable homes i don't know we are you've got a feel for them haven't you i know it's terrible isn't it can, <laughs> it's... We, can we do a kickstarter for is... them well you might have to i mean it's, it's shocking really i mean there's this 20 percent threshold and they're literally i think it's something like 1.2 percent they're thinking that they'll be below that threshold i mean you're still talking you know tens of millions of pounds that they're going to make in profit they'll walk away from this site with that money in their pocket um and i always think profit is profit at the end of the day these are seasoned developers who've done this over and over again on multiple sites they know what they're getting into they know the value of the land 
they know legally how much um, affordable housing they're meant to provide and yet time and time again they use viability assessments section 106 to to do their best to skimp out on giving these affordable house housing um needs to the local people and it will be us as citizens of this city who will miss out because we desperately need these affordable homes i mean affordable homes is a term that can be debatable anyway Mm -hmm. but you know we need these affordable homes whether it's housing association homes for people who desperately need them to come off the council list or we need these part rent part buy homes for people to get on the first ladder um, and you know get out of homes free them up for other people if they can afford to take this first step onto the property ladder and you know it, it, it ends up that you know you have so many people on the council list who desperately need these homes um and in the end we, we do as you know we, right quite rightly you know we have to support people who are in need but it you know we have to pay for them to go into bed sits or other accommodation if there's not enough um housing for them by the council and it, it comes out of our our purse strings when it comes to council tax and it's just unfortunate that you know these developers will walk away with a nice tidy profit you know 18 million plus it's not really something to be uh scoffed at and you know it's us that suffer for it in the end yeah it's... so we asked um we oh, sorry carry on simon no that's fine you you were, it sounds like you were just about to do exactly what i was just about to do which was which is to what? say that we asked um we asked um Cal Corkery, who's a who's um, a Labour councillor, who's also very passionate and um, yeah. outspoken about housing matters uh, and about concerns about levels of affording how ho- affordable housing, um, and we also uh, reached um, reached out via him to uh, to uh, Paula and Savage, um, also who's very interested in um, in the events in Milton um, with regards to. Um, if they wanted to come on and make a comment or record any comment, and sadly um, neither were available. Um, but our our recorded um, submissions that we had, thankfully, from uh, Councillor Terry Norton, um, he, um, although we offered for him to comment on this, he reminded us that as, Lee, as someone that's actually on the planning committee, um, it's Im- yeah. it would be improper for him to actually pass a comment on on this particular issue because um, that would put uh, to be fair that would put him in a in a difficult situation and the developer would be in a situation where they could say well hang on a minute our our case hasn't been heard with it with an open mind um, but he did have yeah. a he did have a point to raise um, that he, he made actually towards the, the so we wouldn't pay we w- we won't um, we won't play his, his clip on the on this bit but we will later on. But if, uh, Ian, I don't know if you wanted wanted to pick up on the because I thought it was a, an interesting um, um, uh, point that he'd made actually with regards to affordable housing. Yeah, and and the point that that I think um, you know Terry was making is that the 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 onus for affordable housing should it be on um, commercial developers, or or should it really be sitting, you know with the local council um, to, to, to make the right levels of investment for affordable housing. Um, because I think one of the things, you, you know, you've acknowledged there, Kimberley, is almost every one of these commercial developments um, that that comes to the council for approval, um, you know, there are these statutes that say they should deliver a certain percentage. And every time the viability assessment says that they can't afford to do it, so I guess are we are we barking up the wrong tree by looking to for commercial developers to effectively subsidise the the council's responsibility for affordable housing? I think it works a bit of both ways. I think there is responsibility on the developers' side if they're going to put in a large stock of housing, definitely anything that pushes up the uh, number of residents in an area and quite significantly. Um, I really do think that they should be looking to help the existing residents and improve facility, whether it's in, give them the housing that, you know, the council needs, whether it's improving facilities such as community facilities, um, whether it's offering space for community facilities such as doctor surgeries, if that is a possibility, or community centres. I do think the developer really does have a responsibility in that regard. Um, and I- I would agree with you there, and I think I'm fairly sure I read when I was looking in the evening news that the developer, although they're not um, they're not meeting the obligations on affordable housing, they are paying a two point 
eight million pound something levy. The community uh, infrastructure they, levy. Yeah. 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 Yes, it's it's normally this is where we've had an issue. Um, Keep Milton Green, the Milton Forum, and the Milton Neighbourhood Planning Forum. Um, normally, we'd be quite you know if this development was going to go ahead, um, it gets planning, and you know there you developers normally tend to pay into this seal pot of money, um, and that's there to improve local facilities for the area. Like in Milton, um, it's gone towards improving classrooms um in one part of milton it's gone to improving a playground in another um you know it's gone to help you know improve facilities but this money that they're handing over is not necessarily going into milton's pot of money it's to do with um so there's st always ongoing stuff with the nitrates issue that's going on at the moment but i mean we are very lucky that in milton that we live next to the common and because of the bird protection there, the nature reserve that Milton Common is, they then have to pay money towards that. So a large, that large chunk of money is not necessarily going into Milton. It will end up going into a bigger pot and helping towards the recreational sort of it, um, the amount of people using the, um, the common and things like that. Us in Milton, we're not necessarily getting any sill money at all, um, which is quite upsetting because we'll have all the, you know, the building work going on, the disruption, the increase in population. Um, we've got a lack of school places around here and across the city. Um, it won't necessarily go just to us. It will be spread out, which also can be fine, but it just, it sucks for us residents in Milton a bit that we might not see any of that money potentially. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I, I get kind of the, I get the argument that, you know, to, to be honest, private developers are in the business of being private developers. They're there to make a profit. I don't think that 18 million is a, is a sniff. It's, it's not a, an inconsequential, it's not but a mere, what's the thing from, I'm thinking of the Monty Python, it is but a mere. Oh, I can't remember now. <laughs> no, anyway, don't worry. Um, so a wafer thin mint. So it, you know, it, it's more than a trifle, surely. Um, but I think there is a there is a there is a kind of case to be made that yes, we shouldn't only be relying on private developers to be um, to be delivering social housing um, or affordable housing, and as you say, that's that kind of falls under much much of a weirdly shaped umbrella, doesn't it? It's a, so yeah. it's I I don't know. It kind of just seems like for me, the legislation allows the developers to cherry pick the. Um, you know the the best of sites to enable them to actually develop and sell on expensive housing which is wonderful that people want to come and spend that sort of money in Portsmouth but doesn't really help the locals doesn't doesn't help the local communities uh, and doesn't help us actually make sure that the people that live and work here can you know that their families can grow in in suitable surroundings and stuff so I'd I'd I'd, I'd, I'd it's, it's, well. it's very it's frustrating that they keep and, and that's not all developers. I've got to say, Homes England, although, you know, in Milton, we've had our issues with the, the different developers going on. You know, I can't say that about Homes England in regards to the affordable homes because they're providing the 30%. So you're looking at sort of 35 plus homes that they will provide to local people. Mm -hmm. You know, so I can't, I mean, I can't grumble about that. In, um, it's just a shame that the second developer sat in a, very public meeting in front of a good chunk of local people and and promised you know they they knew it was something very top of our agenda along with green issues that if this was going to get planning permission they guaranteed they would provide this number of affordable homes and it's a bit of a cop-out I think in a way to say it's that it's not you copying out um, it's a bit of a cop-out from the developer to say oh well it's down to those lot in Milton who are a pain in the butt um we put very valid reasons as to why we think there shouldn't be that amount of housing their um settings of the hospital um the placement of it the type of housing the loss of green space and they've listened and they've taken it down for whatever reason to the number it is now um but then they want to convert our lovely little chapel that we have in there and you know we don't want to see that go um so they come down for a reason and I think they've come down for a sensible reason, but there's still, it's still not great to be honest. 
Yeah, and I think when I look at those numbers, though, Kimberly, you know, again, those those detached, those what were eighty four are now fifty eight properties. Yeah. You know, they they are. You know, I had a brief look at the spec. Um, I won't be buying one myself, not unless the the the, the lottery numbers come in. There's there's an awful lot of, you know, that that reduction has has, by my reckoning, has probably taken their revenue down for that development as a whole by at least ten million. Um, you know, because they were the they were the four or five bed detached properties that they were looking to sell for six, seven hundred thousand pounds. So, you. you know, I, I think there is a balancing act there. And I guess the final dimension to, to look at is that, you know, again, some people will, will, will accuse it of being, you know, gentrification of an area. But I guess, you know, if you are going to have you know what effectively be a hundred and seventy new families moving into that development that have the finances to purchase such properties then you know if there's the ability for that to spend local then surely that could be beneficial to some of the local businesses in milton oh definitely and i, I definitely agree with that um it's just a number of i i always say that i'm not against house building i live in a rented house i'd love to my own my own house believe me i would but I always think that you need to build in the right places and you need to have the right infrastructure in place before you add to it. Yeah. And as I've said, we, you know, we've got a real lack of school places, doctor surgeries. I mean, personal experience, I'm still waiting for a hospital appointment almost a year on now. Um, and I can't see my doctor for another eight weeks at the moment. Um, dental surgeries, I haven't been able to see my dentist in a year because they've, they're almost close to closing. Um, and the road network, we know down here in Milton that there's a problem because um, as a forum and working with Friends of the Earth, we fixed um, um, the little monitors up near Milton Park School and it, it raised a real issue that there's real pollution down here and it the queues. And, and also the sewage, I, was, I was, had a deputation at full council the other week to talk about the discharges into Langston Harbour and I know you guys touched on it as well the other week. And it's it, it, to add many more people into an area that already has issues i would rather if possible if there is to be building at some point that people whether it's government council focus on the local issues that we have and trying to improve them for the people who are already there before then adding further problems on top of that and uh, making issues much much worse um i mean i'm not looking forward to if this goes ahead for my kids they're coming up to the age where I've got to apply for new schools for them over the next few years and if this development goes ahead that's going to personally make mine and a lot of people in the areas um chances much harder um and it's just so many issues that come into it it's it's not simple it's it can be quite gray in some areas as well and I do get sometimes where developers are coming from it's just very frustrating when you know you've been told something over and over again especially when it comes to the affordable housing and then all of a sudden the hands go up and they say we can't afford to do this anymore um and they backtrack and it's just very frustrating and it's something i know i found it over the years i know cal you know he's done a lot of work on this as well and it's something that's been ongoing for a very long time and um maybe the housing numbers i think that doesn't help that are being pushed on portsmouth at the moment i really don't think that helps and i do think at some point the uh, national government do have to step in and realize you know we are a city island we can't build down because a lot of it's below sea level we haven't got many green spaces that i mean we don't want to lose them anyway um, and we don't want to build on them so you either go upwards or build on green spaces and i don't think many people want that at all and i really think the government need to take a good long hard look and understand that we are a special case in this city and you know the housing numbers they place on us as a city are i don't know where they're going to go to be honest and i do think that does cause a big factor in a lot of things around here as well it, I, I guess it's um there's that in the, the i guess government and local councils are trying to square two probably quite incompatible things one is that housing's so expensive because there's actually a shortage of supply and you know you know it's all about supply and demand right if there's demand there but no supply then the pr the price goes up and in some places yeah. that's worse than others because there's a concentration of demand and, and a dearth of dearth of supply but i guess the question is how do you then end up 
creating more supply in places where people want it and allow it and it's the right sort of type because if you just leave it to the market the market is by its very nature going to want to develop the things with the high profit margins so the you know the four or five um, detached property houses that to be fair in best will in the world that a lot of people are never going to be able to afford but they at least deserve kind of a a shot at being able to afford something when you kind of and we we won't get into it because it's a whole different subject but if you if you kind of look at the ratio between um the 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 you know the value of a starter home um versus the average salary um now compete compared to you know the 1960s or the you know 1950s there's there's a there's a massive kind of a, a amount of difference but where do you i think there's a bigger strategic question of is actually a more sensible thing rather than trying to squeeze ever more properties into already densely populated urban areas is actually the better thing to start new towns um you know like um like you know like the country did in the 50s and 60s with um mm. you know with several parts of the and and is that that's a whole other kettle of onions as someone would say that's a that's a bigger kind yeah. of nut to crack that we definitely aren't going to fix in an hour <laughs> no i i agree and and i mean wellborn was just down the road and that's been um just around fairham and that's been ongoing for many years and i think that's sort of ground to a halt a little bit at the moment um, but you can see the level of opposition there as well. For, and, you know, and that would be a whole new sort of town around there. And I don't think anyone's ever going to be happy to lose any green space. It's And it, like I said, it's a grey area. We do need more housing. We, You know, we definitely do. But like I said, I don't think it should go somewhere where, you know, there's already existing problems. I think we should need to work on the problems that we have before adding further to it. Yeah. And, and just to just before we wind up, um, if that was all right, Ian, unless there was something you, I've, we've got a couple of comments yeah, no, from no. the comment. Did you want to say anything, or shall I go to the comments? No comments. So we've got Lynn saying Kimberly talks sense. None of what she says is unreasonable. There we go. Oh, so we you. can we'll, we'll get t-shirts printed of that. Um, and Paul says, uh, Phil, the council should be asking tough questions about the about the i think there's a is that a mistype or just my eyes uh, about the non-building of social housing so um indeed what powers do they have to actually ask those tough questions of developers in order to say come on you can't really plead poverty on an 18 you know in this example um and we obviously haven't got um pj livesey here to to put across their 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 side of the view but from a point of view of their own, you know, developers will explore what the law allows them to do and what is in the interest mm. of their shareholders. That's naturally what they're going to do. But you know, what powers do councils really yeah. have to push this push this issue? It, it, it is a real shame, though, because I've I've sat in many a planning meeting um, with councillors, you know, of all different colours, and the majority of the time, and the majority of them, all of us are sitting there arguing about the same thing. Um, it's just even there's always a worry that you know everyone can see that we need these affordable homes but then we all know that there's an opportunity that if it gets you know thrown out then the developer will take it straight back to the bristol planning inspector it'll go to appeal and then the council have to pay said costs it, i find that the council often stuck it, it's frustrating yep. in a really sort of catch-22 situation where you know, they'll fight and fight and fight and then, you know, it'll have to go through or they'll fight and fight and fight. It won't go through. And then, you know, the developer takes it off and then, you know, we incur all the costs. So lose, lose. I can understand how frustrating it is. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you for coming on and um, giving up part of your Sunday to talk to talk about that one, Kimberly. It's been lovely um, no, welcoming sorry. you back on. And um, Thank well, you. keep us posted with, with how that one goes. And um, is there a decision coming up with regarding to this one? Is that when it, should we watch the calendars and the? When yeah. It... Um, so the main two, pla- um, myself, the forum, the two forums, we've all come together, and councillors from Baffins and Milton, we've requested that it's not a piecemeal decision. Um, so um, luckily, the planning department have agreed, and they have agreed that they will both be heard at the planning committee in May together uh, side by side um so that's coming up i don't know a date quite yet for that and then we there is one other thing coming forward which is this week at planning committee and that is to hear about the curtilage listing of the two villas in the grounds we don't want them demolished um ideally at the moment the developer wants them demolished and turned into some very hideous blocks of flats 
we don't want that we want to preserve them because they're done by a lovely architect in the area um they're very old they're over 100 years old so yeah it's definitely worth listening to that hopefully that will get thrown out and we'll get to get some cartilage listing on them anyway excellent well we'll keep our ears peeled thank you very much Kimberly. thanks as always take care thank you thank you okay so what's next on our on our greed is shall good. Shall we go? Shall we go order order? Council, Joe, do you want to go council chamber back, or do you fancy a bit of a dally around the vaccines world? Uh, oh, do you know what? I can't decide. I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not sure. Let, let's let's go with the council chamber thing anyway. Let's 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 go with there. So we've got some recorded uh, comments um, from Councillor Terry Norton and from uh, Councillor Gerald Vernon Jackson. So shall we kind of dive straight in? Because I think Gerald explains kind of a bit of context for us with the yep. pre- with his pre-recorded um, interview. So um, so let's um, let's try and um, make sure that works. Um, those of you following live, please uh, welcome and thank you for having the patience to bear with us uh, twice in the space of four days. Um, but please do let us know if there's a technical problem with this and I'll try to turn my mic off when I start swearing because um, that might happen. Um, so here we go. So Gerald, thanks for giving us your views on the government failure to actually extend the measures what can you expect give us a background as to what is actually isn't happening rather than what should okay so um for the last year councils have run their meetings remotely um on zoom or on teams so that people don't have to get together in rooms um it's worked remarkably well um and um that seems to have have been a useful thing to have done over the last year to stop people having to get together in rooms to meet um, and therefore pass on infection. And and how is it that this has come to a head? That they, that they're um. Well, so the powers to do this um, finish on May the sixth, and the government have chosen not to renew them. So um, we're going to be going back to meetings um, physically. So on uh, May the seventeenth, there will be around seventy people in a room um, doing. At our annual meeting um, and sometimes our meetings go on for up to 10 hours and it it just seems bizarre that when Public Health England is saying that infection rates are going to go back up again um, the government are pushing people to meet in rooms with up to 70 people at a time for long periods of time and um, particularly when uh, some councils may be um, at high risk of catching the virus or if they do catch the virus at at high risk of suffering very badly from it. And in, and our um, councils like Portsmouth are they able to put into put in any other practical kind of steps to mitigate those, those sorts of risks at all? Well, I think what we'll have to do is try to meet in as bigger rooms as possible so that people are able to to be socially distanced. Um, but we'll see. I, I think there's big pressure on from councils of all political persuasions for the government to change their mind. Although it would take take a minister 10 minutes to sort this out um but at the moment they don't seem to be interested in doing so so that was leader of the council gerald vernon jackson's um view on the subject um shall we talk a little bit about that or should we get straight into straight into terry's well, let's see what terry's thoughts are so we've um terry's given us a um um bless me he's, he's given us um a lot of his time so he's given us a a, a good lengthy contribution so we've split it into two just to give us a chance to talk around it but here is the first part of uh, Terry's uh, contribution and here we go I am in favour of returning to -to face-to-face meetings um, if we can do it safely and and I'm confident that we can Um, it's been a difficult year hasn't it with many uh, council officers the majority of them working from home and that's led to some issues, I think, in terms of immediacy and in terms of uh, communication. So where elected officials can meet face to face safely, which uh, I'm confident we can, I think we should be doing that, really. Um, it will restore, I think, confidence in um, us as uh, a council and as elected officials to make important decisions 
um, and, and uphold democracy. And it's been stifled slightly with some of the technical issues that we've had with um, you know, online meetings and, and people's internet dropping out and, and, and not being able to connect and, and, and all those sort of issues. And surprisingly, um, it's the Liberal Democrat administration at the moment who appear to be uh, in favour of remaining uh, online and not having face-to-face -face meetings. But it, it's them who have the most uh, technical issues with, you know, internet dropping out and, and not being able to grasp some of uh, the technology, um, sharing screens and things like that. Um, and I just think it doesn't really look good on a council when we've got um, those kind of issues, it, it makes us look sloppy, um, you know, so I am in favour of uh, returning to online meetings. Um, we saw many of these issues uh, at the last full council meeting and, and surprisingly, uh, Simon left these bits out of, of, of your podcast last week, but there are a plethora of issues um, from the Lib Dem administration, from um, cabinet members not knowing uh, who was answering what question and then you know asking to come back to it and that sort of messing up the order slightly and I think that's a very difficult position when we start you know messing with standing orders um, you know screens were being shared uh, and of course uh, the deputy leader of the council councillor Steve Pitt said about the leader of the council um, you know uh, he doesn't know what he's doing and that was caught from his microphone being left on um, and it, it's just an embarrassing situation for for us as a council as a whole really um you know non-politicos don't really get involved i don't think of with um party politics they just want us to appear competent and um they want to have faith that we know what we're doing and i think it looks quite reflects quite poorly on us as a council when we've got those kind of issues as a whole you know forget party politics um, you know, just us as an, a group of elected members um, that are brought uh, forward to make important decisions. So, so I, I, I um, trimmed him, trimmed him a little bit there. So um, forgive us, um, Councillor Norton, but um, I think we kind of got the gist of your of your point. What were your your views, Ian, on on what Councillor Norton said there? It's it's uh, it's a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, I think you know there there is an element of uh, we've all existed in that Zoom environment or that Teams environment. You know, you're on mute. You you know, I was just going, I had an AGM last night with my cricket chums, and you know, somebody pointed out that that my camera was entirely facing my chest rather than my head. You know, you get these dropouts. So I think it is whilst it's been essential it, it it isn't optimal so i think you know i think terry's right there um you know that, that it, it, it perhaps doesn't look good it, is it a case of the public would forgive that i think most people who've operated on online meetings will understand that those things go wrong um i i, I would step to your defense if i may in that we we Simon has the job of taking a 10-hour council meeting and editing it into um, into probably two or three three-minute sections. Uh, maybe maybe this for our, our next um, album, Simon, we can we can have a bloopers reel and you can cut the uh, cut those bits out and stitch them together into a package. So, no, we didn't uh, pick up on the technical issues last week um, or last meeting, but I think you know it, it's always going to be a balancing act. It, it is, and to be honest, as, as much as someone might say they're trying not to be party political, the Liberal Democrats aren't the only party that had suffered from technical issues, um, and they aren't certainly aren't the only party that had suffered from situations where someone had left their mic open and they shouldn't have done, and they certainly aren't the only party that um, had councillors not sure what they were actually voting on and needed to actually check that with... Um, with the council off with the officers or with with the lord mayor so I, if i'm honest i do find aside from the qu the broader question of it, as an example of democracy in action um would people rather see it um live in the, in the council chamber um or would they rather have a you know rather stream because to be honest to most people there are most people that, that are watching 
to be fair, I'd, I'd gamble that a large proportion of the people watching are actually the people heavily involved in campaigning in, in Portsmouth politics anyway, and the members of the public that aren't interested in political campaigning that are watching, um, I should imagine actually it's easier for them to follow it from home. Um, oh, whether whether the uh, whether the video is coming from the council chamber or whether the video is coming from you know, I I've sat through the council the, the the meetings in the council chamber and usually there's there's no more than six people actually watching and those and as the meeting goes on those numbers kind of die down so I think I don't think I if I'm really honest I don't I don't I don't think the public are that bothered by the difference and companies up and down the country are having to get used to working professionally. Um, with um with internet meetings and i don't think it's a problem for a for a for a country in the 21st century to operate a 21st century democracy now the thing that i missed was that it's the 17th of may now that if uh, because i that is the that is the next date for the well there's the april the 12th date for the next level of unlocking and then may the 17th is the next date before we get to june the 21st normality day so I kind of uh, and look, there's Things an element change, of yeah. at some point we're going to be back to normal, and June the twenty first looks like normality day. But I don't, I don't think any of us are really certain as to what that normality is or will be. And if it's, you know, masks off, social distance done, let's all get on with life as we did before then for me, I can't see why you wouldn't extend the period where you meet virtually out to June the 21st. It, it does seem let, to be a particular... Let's, let's make one change. Yeah. It, but I guess, sorry, just to, just to finish, yeah, yeah, I guess if realistically the June and beyond is still going to be masks, is still going to be social distance, is still going to be those kind of those baseline hands face space precautions then may the 17th is almost as good a date as any um well it is but the agm normally takes place kind of the week up you know immediately you know not necessarily the the day it doesn't take place the day after the um after the election and also it's going to take longer to count um, the election because the council have already said that they're not going to be um, taking the t um, performing the count overnight like they normally would because people will be uh, too tired to uh, to socially distance properly and uh, to be fair some people in some parties take the opportunity to frequent the bar rather than observe the count um, and neither of those things will be conducive to maintaining a safe environment I think that as I understand it and all of the th this plan is yet to be written I think the idea is to put particular wards into different rooms around the guild hall so that you're kind of segregating off mm. um but let's not deprive ourselves of the rest of uh, uh terry's contribution because he was good enough to um to send us send us lots of contributions so let, let's hear the rest of what he's got to say these issues would be avoided if we were uh, meeting in person uh, we can do it safely because you know the council chamber is uh, a big space you know this idea that we're all crammed in there like sardines just isn't true um there's plenty of space for us to be able to social distance um, and, and give us a chance, you know, at appearing uh, far more competent. Um, so, yes, I'm in favour of returning to face-to-face um, -face meetings where we have committees and uh, planning and licensing. Again, I think they could be done in, in the council chamber or in a space um, where we could socially distance um, and it would give us a a better crack at, you know, upholding democracy and um, adhering to, to standards, really. Um, if I were a, a resident or, or a developer, let's say, for planning that had brought an application forward and the online meeting was stop and start and kept dropping out and people were there and weren't there and there were questions over whether they can vote because they'd heard the whole of the, the, the meeting and all of those sort of things, I think I'd feel... Um, a little bit disappointed um, if an outcome didn't go my way. Yeah, I, I, I don't really kind of have anything else to say other than what I've said already about I, I, I don't really think the people at large are bothered about it. Yeah, I, I, and often with these issues, it, it is, you know, I, I guess, you know, you, you look at it two ways, isn't it? It's that how, 
I think many people are craving normal. And, and yeah. you know, as I say, uh, whether you do it in on May the 17th or June the 21st, kind of ambivalent, but um, yeah, let, let's, um, let, let's, let's hopefully all of the uh, measures will follow through and we can get back to some sort of normalcy. Is that a word? I've just made that. Um, normality, I think, is, is probably normality. probably yeah. a better uh, one. So that's probably better. Yeah. So but, let, uh, yeah. I think that's something that we we, we can all crave. I, indeed. But it was interesting that there were some different particular points about actually the the physic the physicality of the council chamber itself. And and Councillor Norton rightly points out there's lots of space in the council chamber. Um. So you know, is that you know, in, it might be an issue in in other councils who are you know who don't have such large chambers in which to meet or large um, spaces at uh, at their disposal. But is there a way to make it work in that space? I'm, I'm, I, I so don't. I don't think it's beyond the wit of the of the fine people at, at the council to to make that work. Perfect. Right. So, vive la vaccines. Yeah. So we've. Um, We've, you know, we've got a particular clip that um, that talks about. There's a particular comment that was made uh, about vaccines and about how that works. So, should we? So, shall I? Shall I start by just framing the the, the vaccines discussion and the EU UK position and kind of where we find ourselves now? So, uh, and again, I'm I'm going back to last Tuesday. Um, so there is an element of if you look at the the vaccine programs in the UK and the EU, they were both at very different um, states of play. So as of last Tuesday, 40% of the UK population had received their first shot of the vaccine compared to 13% in the EU. So we had effectively, we were three times as far along the piece and that then started to lead to a bit of saber rattling on on both sides about potential vaccine exports now i have worked in this area so i do have a little bit of insight um and effectively the difference that the, the manufacturers are working with um i've got a little bit of insight into the pfizer world and the economist covered the astrazeneca so it seems very similar is that the two contracts that were the, basically the contracts are very similar in terms of the UK contract is very much time bound with targets along the route that have to be hit and there are significant commercial penalty clauses in there if those um, if those you know if they, that schedule is not met the EU contract um, is more is more open in its nature in that it quotes an end figure and an end date. But in terms of the delivery schedule um, along that route, that's much more open and talks only of best endeavors from both Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Now, the complication, of course, is that Pfizer's manufacturing facility is all in the EU. So anything that comes to the UK will be an export. AstraZeneca have a number of manufacturing sites, some in the UK, some in the EU. So the UK will receive a mix of doses that have been made in the UK and doses that will have been made in the EU. So if we look at it as a whole, you know, there is this piece where AstraZeneca have got more plants and more subcontractors coming on line. So they're very confident they will hit the end date for the EU and the end volumes, but where it's tight at the moment, the two contracts means that both Pfizer and AZ do have to favour the UK over the EU. And I guess if you were an EU citizen, you're going to be pretty cross about that. Um, yeah, this is probably the point where some people might be expecting me to rally to the defence of the EU. Um, because I don't know if you can see in the corner of the shot, um, I playfully put my EU flag um, flag out. Um, but are you going to break into Ode to Joy? <laughs> no, I, I'm not. Any <laughs> any more than later on, I'm going to. We're going to play Land of Hope of Glory. Um, exactly. So um, we couldn't afford the rights. Um, so um, actually, no. Look, to be really honest, the EU have bungled this. They didn't do the contracting as well. They haven't done the organisation of it as as well. 
um, and, uh, and unfortunately, um, their contractual arrangements have um, have taken a lower priority from f from a fulfilment perspective um, than other countries' arrangements have done. Um, so um, I'll repeat it again because we did say it on Sunday. Oh, well, I did say it on Sunday. Y what w what the UK have done in res regards to the contracting in this issue, I think we've got that absolutely right. Um, we've made sure that the contracts are tight. Um, that there is some wiggle room, but with agreement and with penalty clauses, if not, and that also that we've actually secured supply from a variety of different pharma um, pharmaceutical companies, which which also makes sense. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, so to be fair, in that respect, um, of the many things I've criticised this government about them organising the contracting of the purchasing of the vaccines, I would not and cannot and am not. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry the EU have buggered this up. Um, and for them to then, to be honest, fall for um, the Prime Minister's blathering phone nationalism of, you know, there are vaccines, blah, 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 all of this kind of malarkey, and to then come out with their own kind of so-called vaccine nationalism of themselves just isn't a good look for them, doesn't work. It doesn't, doesn't work from an EU perspective. Both the EU and the UK need to remember that neither of those um, well, neither, well, the EU isn't the country, but the EU nor the UK have actually manufactured the vaccines themselves. They've been manufactured by um, pharmaceutical companies that have had some degree of support, both financial or material, from, um, from governmental bodies. But nonetheless, they don't own anything yep. other than the vaccines that they've purchased. And if it's a contractual yeah. disagreement, see my earlier comment about the contract being piss poor. So what's Terry got to say on the subject? So let, let's let's hear what Terry's got to say. So again, again uh, forgive us, Terry. We've we've kind of broken you in, into two bits, but um, I don't think I needed. I don't think I trimmed any of this off this off this one. So here's here's Terry on vaccines, part one. I think it's absolutely fine to say that we are doing a a good job uh, for the people of of this country, and it's difficult nowadays, isn't it, in the in the woke society that we live in, where everything is is taken out of context and spun to cause know, outrage and uh, an offence. Um, but, you know, we've developed a vaccination in this country. We've given it to uh, the people of this country first, and it, it's OK to do that. Um, and for that, I think the country, the nation are, are thankful. Um, now, that's difficult to hear, I think, for those who like to talk Britain down, and there are plenty of them um, on, on the council, um, I imagine all this good news is is probably quite hard to take, but you know, without sounding like a a, a flag waver, um, you know, it's, isn't it amazing what you can achieve when you're no longer fighting for scraps around the EU table? So, despite all the the fear mongering and the negativity that was constantly pushed by um, the Remainers, um, many of the Liberal Democrats on on the council. Great Britain has done a good job um, uh, and we are the envy of, of other nations in Europe. And, you you know, don't take it from me. You can take it from the German tabloids um, who were writing things like uh, Britain, we envy you. Um, and in some of the some of the headlines that we saw over here, things like um, we have a forward thinking procurement plan with a leading large nation. And there were some... Um, <laughs> quotes I remember which said something along the lines of um, you know for frothing Ramonas nothing can be more um, depressing um, you know uh, if you're a, a self-loathing liberal Brit uh, the, the fact that we're doing a, a great job with this vaccination rollout um, and, and that wasn't coming from you know Daily Mail or Guido Fawkes or any or anything like that that was the you know Labour loving Tory hating Guardian that were writing those sort of things so when you've got anti-government press patting us on the back we must be doing a decent job now we'll pause him there just for the um well just to give us a chance to to try and dissect um that particular element you go first Ian no, oh, I think Terry's, he's obviously, he's, he's very enthusiastic at that point. He's gone on a bit of a roll. He's, he's, uh, he's had a poke at, uh, at some of the, you know, some of the, uh, the, 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 the remaining elements. Um, so, uh, you know, I kind of, 
yeah, it's 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 a very bold statement he's made there. I think there are some points in there in terms of, you know, that there is an element of, and again, look, you're always going to get this tension, uh, and particularly when you talk about flag waving and and you know being very pro Britain and land of hope and glory. And I think you know for me, it, it's an interesting one. It's a little bit like the Brexit and the Remain, isn't it? You know, you're going to have some some people singing loud of hope and glory and waving the flag flag and you're going to have some extremists who you know will describe the 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 flag as a you know a tissue of of you know post-colonial britain and blah, 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 blah. you know so they're going to be extremists on both sides i think terry's getting a tad enthusiastic there but i think if we pull out the core message that hooray you for a great vaccines uh, rollout i don't think there are i'm going to disagree with terry I don't think there are any people who are going to be disappointed that we've got a decent vaccines rollout and hope that it would have been worse so that they could point at Brexit and say, yeah, yeah, it's all its fault. Um, yeah, you, you use the word bold. I would perhaps use different words. Um, it seems that the only people getting excited about linking Brexit with the vaccine are... Um, people that were in favour of it. Um, um, look, guys, you you won. We we've left. Um, get on with it. Um, it's it's a done deal. Why do you why do you keep going on about it? I don't understand what what the point of that is. Um, it is worth pointing out that being a member of the EU wouldn't have stopped us um, making our individual arrangements that we currently have with pharmaceutical companies because many um, European countries chose not to take part in the EU-wide scheme that, as I said earlier on, has been utterly bungled. So um, I think it's a bit of a shame. Let's not, um, you know, let's not kind of let the whistles of land and hope and glory kind of um, blind ourselves to um, to all of the things that are going well with the vaccine rollout and with, as I've said, with the contracting of actually the arrangement of purchasing those vaccines. Let's solemnly remember that 127,000 people have died in this country and that our country has actually one of the one of the highest um, fatality rates for COVID, um, uh, you know, for per capita. So um, I, I don't think it's appropriate to get all celebratory and misty-eyed uh, about a bit of flag waving uh, about this this particular bit that is going very very well. And as I said, it is going very very well. So I think it's a sh I think it's a shame to drag Brexit into that because it's not relevant. And I think it's a shame to to disrespect actually the country. By um, by suggesting that um, nationalism and patriotism patriotism are the same thing, um, I love my country just as much as the next person. But that doesn't mean that I can't criticise it when it does things that are silly. Yeah, and I I I, I think yeah, we're in an interesting space, aren't we? In, we in are that indeed. Regard in terms of when does patriotism become nationalism and when does nationalism become extremism? And you know th there are. There are, you know, uh, and it's interesting because, again, you and I frequent political forums uh, and, you know, for, for me, I think it, it, your position and, and you've been very clear all along about your, your, you know, the remain in the EU. And I think there is a position where you've been, you know, very, very forthright in saying it is over, it is done. Those that wanted it and have it now need to get on with it. But there is still a significant vocal minority that are almost still trying to win the argument that it was the wrong thing to do. I, d I still don't think it was the right thing to do, but it's done. No. Um, and yes, and yeah, no, yeah. No, one yeah. with, no one with a sound mind and the ability to electorally deliver it is talking about re um, rejoining the European Union. At the end of the day, we are where we are. We've got to make the best out of the situation and the opportunities that we are in because we are in this situation and that's that is not going to change. Um, I just wish that the people that championed getting us to this situation would actually also own some of the problems and some of those will, will be solved with time because that's the nature of a evolutionary change in the marketplace. Yeah. Let's just, again, I'm, I, I didn't want it to be a conversation about Brexit, but it was because Terry brought it in to the conversation yeah, and, so, and, and, yeah. and I think it, it's right that we should acknowledge it and, and have those conversations I think if we if we if we move on to the vaccines rollout I think the you know the positive and you touched on it just before we went into that is the fact that you know 
Moderna, which is the third vaccine in the UK, is scheduled to arrive towards the end of April. Um, you know, April, there's talk of there being a bit of a slowdown in first vaccinations, which there will be, um, so that we can serve the stocks of Pfizer and AZ for those that are due for their second round. Um, Moderna will come on now. I think there's two more, Petrovax and the other one, um, you know, which, which, you know, means that I think by the time we get to sort of May, June, not only will we be continuing the the vaccine, you know, we'll be able to stamp back on the accelerator again, um, and hopefully, you know, by that stage stage, there will be so much production capacity that that you know the EU can also step on the accelerator and catch back up again. Indeed, um, uh, Lynn makes a comment in our comments um, that she voted Remain, but loved Land of Hope and Glory. Um, but we'd still like to share nicely. So um, um, there, there is an argument about as we race to, as we race now to vaccinate people that are um, further and further away from the high, so, you know, the high risk, the statistically yep. high risk groups, while actually there being uh, people in countries that we want to go on holiday to or to trade with or, you know, to have a connection with, that they're actually still not able to um, to fulfill getting the most vulnerable actually vaccinated is that really fulfilling you know does that does that really help us what's the, what's the I, I think there was a there was a comment made on twitter by uh, a member of the european parliament today about you know what use is it to vaccinate your entire island if that's the only place you can go um their words not mine um, yeah but yeah, um, should, I, we, I, should I, we get i guess the bit and this is where i, I, I something I, i've missed a memo I think is is, is something that's happened to me at some point in my life because I've never I don't know when the world changed that meant that you had to go on holiday abroad every year or you you weren't living an active and fulfilling life that your life was ruined if you couldn't go to the for your two weeks in Torremolinos. I don't know when that memo came out. I missed it. Um, um, the last time I travelled on my own passport was 1995, which was my honeymoon. Um, now, I travelled. I've been all around the world with work, um, but that's because I've got business class buttocks, not economy class buttocks. But there does seem to be an awful lot of, will we get our, our summer holiday this year? Yeah, but a similar a similar thing played out over Christmas, and look how that happened. About fifty percent of the fatalities in the UK took um, occurred in January in January February, um, yeah. and that's because of the issues around, you know, the the press doing stuff about Johnson fighting the scientists to save Christmas, and then having to actually turn around and and say, you know, a couple of days before Christmas, sorry, it's not going to happen. When well, you know, I'm let's not uh, let's not kid ourselves into the same situation again. It's not the same. Um, same environment virologically because obviously there's going to be lots of people vaccinated by that point but as much as I can understand people's yearning to um, celebrate and make use of the freedoms that have been necessarily deprived of them over over the last um, year um, yeah. let's take a let's take a breath let's be cautious I mean only yesterday we we took that further tentative step um, towards a bit more normality you know the, the rule of six came back in but um uh Enough of us. Let's let's um let's play the the um Terry's last bit so that we can we can make sure that we've we've got all of those in. So let's let's have our our last segment from Councillor Terry Norton. You know, in terms of the European Union, now my understanding is that they had every opportunity to uh, develop uh, and set up vaccination centres, but like usual, they left it months uh, too late to to get things going. It was surrounded in red tape and. Um, all of that sort of nonsense, and, and now they are behind. So, you know, of course we should support um, you know, other nations and Europe if need be, but there's nothing wrong with saying that we're going to look after, um, you know, our nation first. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Uh, so it's a shame because this will probably dent the, um, the future relationship that we're going to have with the EU, but that all seems to be coming from, from one side. Um, and I don't think it's um, the UK that are, are, are making demands and have that sense of entitlement um, and pointing fingers. It, it seems to be coming from uh, the European Union. So I hope that they can 
sorted out uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and of course, you know, we should support them as a nation, but that doesn't mean, you know, at the cost of uh, the British public. I do hope he washes his flag after he's done what he's just done with it. No, yeah, I, I personally, I, that, that, as I say, he got a bit bold on the first one, but that one for me makes perfect sense. And if I was an EU citizen and I'd be, you know, to, to your point about holding your government to account, you, you would you would be pointing across the water and saying, well, how come you couldn't manage it? And I think that, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're at that stage where, look, uh, I think in terms of a future relationship, we we it's in everybody's interest to make it work, isn't it? Uh, it know, is. There and is a it, flow of goods backwards and forwards between the two nations. And I think in this regard, I don't think the UK has done anything wrong by negotiating strong contracts. Um, you know, and, and we're at a point now where it's in everybody's interest to get as many arms full of vaccine goodness as we possibly can, as quickly as we can. Um, indeed, but how many vaccines have left this country to go to other places? Zero. How many vaccines have come from other countries to this country? Millions. Um, so, but, but if we haven't got the, I think I addressed that in the first piece. Pfizer don't manufacture vaccines here. You know, so there is an element of we we never go. You know, if you, that was first, AZ was second, and the majority of AZ's manufacturing capability is on mainland Europe. So, it, it's a kind of it's a bit of a non-stat. You know, we haven't so we haven't so you know we haven't given away a single dose of Pfizer vaccine. Well, no, we haven't because we don't make it. You know, perhaps if you look back in the day, um, you know, three years ago we would have been in a position where in terms of Pfizer vaccine, multiple millions of doses would have left the plant that haven't to go all over the world. Indeed. But as we said earlier on, that the companies making or the manufacturer of the vaccines are pharma um, pharmaceutical companies. They're not they're not, they're not the governments. EU and yeah, they're not they're, and, not, they're not the UK. So um all of this grandstanding and this kind of the vaccine nationalism is is an unfortunate sideshow, um, but in order to reach reasonable agreement, you need to have a reasonable conversation with reasonable people, and part of that requires requires them to, you know, some, you know, both parties to wind down the rhetoric and to sit yeah. down and actually talk honestly. But unfortunately, I don't. I wouldn't trust Boris Johnson to do that in a snow shower. So yeah, I, yeah, no, we, and and look, I get I get the fact. You 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 know, and look, I'm not a great supporter of Boris as a leader. I've not been, I've been openly critical of him on this podcast and in other places. But I think, you know, if, if we look at this, the, the thing that we can both agree on is that the rhetoric needs to wind down. Indeed. The sabre rattling needs to stop. Yes. And ultimately, it's in everybody's interest to get as many arms full of vaccine as they possibly can do in as short a time as possible. And that sounds like a good place to end it on yep. characteristic God bless Bill agreement. Gates and the lizard people you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast blue and yellow till we die I'm Ian Lizard Morris <laughs> and I'm Simon Sandsby thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast if you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics podcast, blue and yellow till we die from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy. <laughs>